From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. This week, our panel discussion gets real. We can't make things better. We can't address racial issues in the U.S. unless we talk about it. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a skill you can get better at if you're willing to sit in the discomfort. I'm joined by the authors of White Fragility, Why Understanding Racism Can Be So Hard for White People. For our newsmaker this week, Sharaday Howard sits with the founder of Urban Youth Kings and Queens in Germantown. I've been kind of motivated to keep driving and moving forward to impact as many lives and to make as much of a difference in the community that I can. Antoinette Lee's Philly Rising Changemaker is a Philly nonprofit celebrating the joy of giving. So we're just going to continue to change the trajectory for our young people and give them a day of joy. All of that is straight ahead on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Well, by the end of this show, you will know we mean it when we say we don't shy away from controversial or uncomfortable topics. Joining me today are authors of a book whose title alone could make some folks uncomfortable, but please do keep an open mind. The name of the book is White Fragility. Why Understanding Racism Can Be So Hard for White People. It's written by Robin D'Angelo and adapted by Tony Graves-Williamson and Allie Michael. Tony and Allie, join us now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Tony, by the way, is Director of Equity and Inclusion at Friends Select School here in Philadelphia. It's a 300-year-old Quaker institution located in the heart of the city. So I wanted to give that local plug there, of course, Tony. So right off the bat, let's talk about getting uncomfortable. Why is it so important for us to get uncomfortable? So we talk about discomfort being the place where real learning happens. That is when folks are at their most vulnerable um, and having an opportunity to, if we have an opportunity to get uncomfortable, then it actually allows us to open our minds up to something that's different. Um, And so pushing ourselves past that uncomfortability Um, helps us to be able to, you know, imagine a world that could be anti-racist. Right. Allie, you agree? I mean, the title of the book alone would make some people uncomfortable. Well, I think about it as like, you know, anytime you start a new experience or you travel abroad or you're in a new context and suddenly like, I mean, those memories are so visceral as you look back on them, because it's like when you're most receptive and open. And I remember the first time I was really asked to talk about race was my freshman year in college. I'd grown up in a predominantly white community where we never talked about race. And in fact, where we were told, like, it's racist to talk about race. You should be colorblind. And I was in this African-American literature class in college and suddenly up against my own incompetence. And I was stuttering and stumbling through trying to participate and realizing there are so many skills here that I lack. And I still look back. I still remember those moments. I was so profoundly uncomfortable, but it opened up such an important part of of the world for me by by saying, actually, it's we can't make things better. We can't address racial issues in the U.S. unless we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And this is actually a skill you can get better at if you're willing to sit in the discomfort and sit in the discomfort with other people who are going to go through it with you. 
as I sit here in this discomfort, and, and I'm about to say something that I normally don't say when it comes to my guests, but I felt the need to tell people that Robin and uh, Allie are white and Tony is black. Now, so why did I feel it necessary to have to disclose that? I think that's important. And it was important for us in this book to have a multiracial team that are thinking about these issues. Um, I also feel like we need to be more comfortable with just naming our race. Um, It seems sometimes as a taboo thing, don't, you know, I remember some folks will try to describe folks to me, the person that has, you know, the dark hair and they're wearing this color shirt. I'm like, oh, the black girl. Um, That sometimes we make it taboo just to even say black or white when we know we can see there is no such thing as colorblind. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate that you asked that question. I started thinking, maybe I should say I'm Black. Maybe I should make sure our listeners know that. Yeah. 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 Th- I, that's actually a really key feature of this book is that we're a multiracial author team and we are writing to a multiracial audience. So this is not a book just for white people. We want students in particular to be able to read it together in their classes and to be able to talk about this, this particular aspect of racism called white fragility. And in the book, we talk about the difference between racial talk and racist talk. And racial talk is what you just did, I think, Raquel, which Mm -hmm. is like naming race, admitting that race and skin color are part of who we are. It's part of our experiences and our identities. Um, It's racist when you start to put value judgments on it or when you up when you try to uphold the racial hierarchy by um, by using stereotypes or by demeaning people based on those racial designations. But naming it as part of our experience, that's just racial talk. And that's part of what we have to do in order to be able to discuss how race impacts our lives. And I wanted to also make sure that people knew that this book wasn't about beating up white people, so to speak, um, because I can see trigger reactions like, oh, what, what do you mean by that? White fragility. What is that? You know, and it automatically someone would get offended and think it's a book about beating up white people. But that's not what this is about at all. This book is actually about making it possible to listen and connect across race. And it's about naming this thing that called white fragility that gets in the way where we um where when somebody has an ex- tells us something about their experience with regard to race or racism that's that the as a white person i don't understand or that that hurts me or that you know surprises me that i would put up my hands and say no like that can't be real this is tony's Tony's gesture that she taught me, like, this is what white fragility looks like. You hold up your hands and like, I don't want to hear anything else because what you're saying contradicts my belief in a fair society or in in my own goodness. Um, When you're trying to give me feedback on something I said or did or misunderstood. Um, But one of the things that Tony brought into this book um, from a, a colleague of ours named Rodney Glasgow is the idea of dominant fragility. And that's for everybody to think about. So you might have dominant fragility if you're a heterosexual person. And sometimes it's hard to hear about the experiences of people from the LGBTQ community. Or you might have dominant Mm -hmm. fragility as a man who doesn't want to hear about sexism. So there's lots of ways in which we can get defensive about our impact on other people or on the about the oppression other people are experiencing. when we're from a dominant group. And so we invite everybody to have their dominant fragility because again, fragility makes it impossible to listen and connect across difference. And that's ultimately what we want people to do is to listen and connect across difference. Right. And ultimately what we're talking about is racism. Um, So let's talk about the different forms of racism. There are different forms, correct? 
Tony, I guess a lot of people are mostly familiar with systemic racism. Mm-hmm. I think people often collapse conversations about around what racism is. And when they hear, hear terms like white supremacy or we live in a white supremacy supremacist culture, um, a lot of folks still are thinking about it from an individual level. So there's individual racism that is familiar to folks with, you know, Ku Klux Klan hoods and um, burning crosses in yards. I grew up in the South. That's mm-hmm. how we saw what racism was. But to understand systemic racism is to see that our country was built on a racial hierarchy that we're trying to figure out how to dismantle. And so to be able to name systemic racism as something that's everybody's problem, not just people of color's problem, not just white folks' problem, but all of us have to work together. Um, When we can name it as such, then that makes it um, possible for us to come to solutions. Can we talk a little bit about segregation, especially because Philadelphia is such a segregated city. Everyone is in their own little areas and very rarely do they, you know, cross into each other, which is why, you know, this program is called Bridging Philly. How is that a setup for more racism, you know, being so segregated in a large city? One of the things that Isabel Wilkerson talks about is all the all the different systemic ways in which we are set up, like you said, have empathy for one another, that we actually literally don't know each other. So laws and policies that historically have segregated us in our living spaces or made it illegal for so long in this country, even to marry across racial lines, has meant that we often don't have intimate relationships with people from racial backgrounds that are different from our own. And it it creates this empathy gap, which makes it hard for us to see how we are interdependent, we are interconnected. And not only, I mean, we have mutual interests politically and economically, and Heather McGee writes about how racism actually hurts everybody. It hurts white people too. And so part of what we're trying to emphasize is that when we're able to listen and connect across race, when we're able to bridge that empathy gap, which means people dealing with their fragility, and and in my case, as a white person, dealing with my own white fragility, so that I can really hear from people of color and be in empathetic connection with them, that that actually is in everybody's interest, including my own, because racism is something that makes us um, afraid of the wrong people, deeply Um, vulnerable to manipulation by politicians and other people in power. And racism, it doesn't hurt white people the same way that it hurts black people, doesn't hurt white people the same way it hurts people of color and native native people, but it does hurt white people too. And so it's actually in the interest of, it's not like a, it's not like a um, charity project or something for white people to work on their own racism. It's actually in white people's self-interest. Okay. So what is different about this version of the book than from the first one? And why did you feel it was necessary to have this adaptation for a younger audience? There there are a lot of things that are different that we're excited about. Um, one, one is that Robin actually was wanting to find a way to take some of her concepts and make them easier to understand, which is what students need to be able to do. But also, folks, we don't think this is just for young people. My sister, who's in her 50s, is reading it. And now we're ha- able to have these conversations um, about white Santa Claus or white Jesus or, you know, the the systems that we grew up with. We now have a way to talk about them because mm-hmm. she's reading this book. But one piece that is really different is that we um, 
make sure that we, in order to speak to a younger audience, um, which was who it was written for originally, is we have examples that are about Allie's and my life that are personal stories Mm -hmm. um, that many um, of the stories that we tell happen to be things that students can can relate to. So for our students or folks who are reading this book, the election of Barack Obama is really different than the election of Barack Obama for was for older folks, right? So it's not I campaigned for Barack Obama, it's my parents campaigned for Barack Obama. So there's one that's one piece of it is we do try to speak to younger audiences in that kind of way. But then we also put uh, illustrations throughout the book. So we had a, a, a graphic artist, Lauren Kennard, who went through and took some of the concepts of white fragility. She used emojis in some places or little pictures or graphs that just made some of the concepts easier to, to see. And then we also have a portrait artist, Kevin. Um, can you say his last name for me, Allie? Yeah, Soltow. Kevin Soltow, who is, um, he drew some really beautiful portraits because one of the complaints that I heard about the first edition of the book is that Robin, who is white, um, makes all these claims, but where does she get it from? And if you go throughout that first version, you see her naming folks like Isabel Wickerson and Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm-hmm. So we had Kevin to do portraits of some of the thinkers and the um, the folks who are activists in this work to pull them off the pages, literally, um, into uh, portraits. Allie, you said earlier that um, racism, of course, doesn't affect white people the way it, f- it affects black people. So I guess one question would be like, so then why should white people care? Uh, and another question for you, Allie, would be, have you experienced any form of racism or have you witnessed racism in real time uh, as far as your own experience? OK, great question. So racism fundamentally was is, is a tool for dividing and controlling. And so if I am a, as a white person, I am being divided and controlled from my fellow human beings. Um, this it's just, it's an, it's so easy to scare people. And, you know, in my childhood, it was like, don't go into the black parts of the city. And, you know, that these, these folks are like somehow fundamentally different from you. We can't go to school with them. And nobody ever said that, but it was just like, that's how it was. That's how it was. And then there was all these stereotypes in the media that kind of fed me the reasons why we're so separate and why we can't go into each other's neighborhoods. Meanwhile, it actually was dangerous for black people to come into the white suburbs where I lived. And yet it it, like we could have been in relationship. So there's like there's so much that's lost in terms of relationship, in terms of um, our accurate perceptions of the world. Um, And I would say I have witnessed racism so many times. Um, and there are overt ways in which I've, I've seen it. Like when I see, um, a police officer pulling over kids of color and I'll stop to try to like, just like be an adult presence because I'm like, well, you're pulling over somebody who's under 18. I think there should be an adult here witnessing. And they always assume that the teenagers hurt me or something. I'm like, I'm not here because you're defending me. I'm here just to witness. And I'll, I'll say like, I'm a, you know, I'm just a concerned citizen <laughs> just watching. Um, but more often when I witness weight racism, I don't even see what it is. Mm. So I, I'll go into school with a black colleague to do a training and the person at the front desk will treat me differently than she treats my black colleague. Mm-hmm. And I, it'll go right over my head until my colleague whispers to me, did you see that? And I'll, and it's, you know, we've been in the school for two minutes and I'm like, see what? <laughs> and, right. and then she explained it to me. Right. 
And I think white fragility would would dictate that I would say like, no, I'm sure that's not what it was. You must be imagining things. But because I know that there are ways I can't even see and understand racism without hearing from my colleagues of color, um, I just, you know, I just try to like not get defensive about the fact that I didn't see it because she treated me differently and hear it and then and then strategize together what we're going to do about it. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, the name of the book is called White Fragility. Why Understanding Racism Can Be So Hard for White People. Tony and Allie, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly today. Thank you, Raquel. More than 100,000 people in the U.S. are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. More than 5,000 from this area alone show you support them. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Hanif Hill is a man who cares about his community. His organization serves hundreds of Philly youth through education and sports programs. Sharaday Howard brings us our Newsmaker of the Week. Urban Youth Kings and Queens was created to inspire the next generation of Philadelphia's community leaders through education and empowering children. And the vehicle to achieve that goal, founder Hanif Hill says, is simply getting the kids off the streets and onto a path for success through sports, after-school programs, and just overall wellness. So Hanif and I had a conversation on his porch talking all things Urban Youth Kings and Queens. Welcome, Hanif, to Bridging Philly. Thank you, Shara. Thanks for having me today. Let's talk about how personal this mission is, because you were a kid that grew up in this neighborhood. You're from Germantown, right? Yeah, I grew up in Germantown, Mount Airy community. Um, went to school in Mount Airy at Houston. Uh, played, you know, high school sports with Germantown. I did attend Lincoln Hall High School at the time. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was always the most important factor of giving back to my community. And so from day one, I wanted to go back home to service the Mount Airy Germantown population and be, you know, a role model for those kids that are coming up today. And you're doing this the best way you know how, through your own experience. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a child growing up in Mount Airy and Germantown, I played youth sports. You know, my, my mom and dad, they kept me engaged all year long playing sports. I played an instrument. I was on the drill team, um, just staying active. And I, and I think I kept my time occupied and it didn't really leave much time for me to wander the streets. I was never bored, always had something to do. But as an adult, as a, as a man now, I see how it shaped my life. I see the perspective that it gave me. I see and understand the message that my parents were delivering to me. And I want to share that same message with the young men and women today, where some are, you know, falling short to that. Some don't have those examples. And so if Urban Youth or even myself, my coaches, my staff, if we can be that example, we could be that role model, then we need to do that. And so, you know, I'm very thankful to have that opportunity. I use Urban Youth as that platform to allow me to reach the just the children that we service every year. Now, what's that message? That message is really, you know, um, that you have a future, you have a bright future, you need to stay active, stay busy, but also through giving back to others, you give back to yourself. You know, and I think that it takes time to understand that that message is more powerful than you know. You think you're just going to basketball practice, you think you're just going to tutoring, you think you're just going on a baseball field, but really you're learning life lessons, you're learning life skills that's going to carry you through life. For me, there's a lot of challenges that I face on a daily basis, but, you you know, through the sports and through the discipline and through the work ethic, I'm able to overcome those challenges. I feel that 
you know, I'm my biggest barrier, you know. So if anything's going to hold me back, it's going to be myself. And so that's one of the things that I've been able to learn through the life lessons growing up as a kid in Philly. It's been now how many years since you started? We are now coming up on our six-year anniversary, actually December 12th, 2022 will be six years for us. Now this milestone is special. Why? Well, Urban Youth, you know, really started as really a, a small program, small organization servicing, I would say, 60 to 100 children. And we have grown to a space where, you know, we're touching over 500 children. Um, we're reaching children throughout the city from over 40 different zip codes. And so we're real excited about, you know, where we were and where we're growing and, and also the, the number of lives and children that we're able to impact every year. Um, so coming up to six years um, is very meaningful for us. I know a lot of people say that your first five years are really telling about the future of the organization. So I'm happy to say that we're actually finishing year six and we're going strong into year seven. What is the overall mission of your organization? Well, really, we want to impact young lives, um, especially from the inner city in Philadelphia. We want to create a gateway and a pipeline for children to succeed on their way through high school and college. And, you know, we try to do that through all of our programs, whether it's our sports or our academic or enrichment programs. It's really about impacting the young lives that we're servicing on a daily basis. Now it's a matter of getting them off the street and into a plausible future. Yes, that's exactly what it's about. You know, um, when we work with our, our athletes on the field, our focus is still their academic achievement. Our focus is still them becoming successful young men and women out in the community and being able to give back as they grow up. So really, it's a full circle picture of how we work with our youth and how we try to impact their lives through all of our programs. So you said five, six years is telling. What does this five and six years tell you about what you've been able to achieve? What does it say? Uh, for me, it's, it's about, you know, staying truth to your mission, staying true to yourself, and, and understanding, you know, your purpose. I think for me, I had a vision since I was 12 years old that I wanted to serve the youth and I wanted to start a, a youth group. And there was a lot of self-doubt, you know, starting out um, in the early years. But I think once I kind of changed that gear and just decided to move forward with it, I've been kind of motivated to kind of keep driving and moving forward to impact as many lives and to make as much of a difference in the community that I can. For me, it's personally, it's it's the, it's the self-growth, it's the self-achievement, it's, it's seeing the lives that we're impacting, the lives that we're saving, um, it's talking to the families who are very thankful and grateful that such a program, such an organization exists. I'm very humble to hear we are making change and we are making progress and I'm very committed to seeing this through. You really changed gears. You took it up a notch during COVID. Tell us how. Yeah, absolutely. You know, during COVID, it was a rough time and, you know, the world was in crisis. Um, our children were at risk, which meant our future was at risk. And I wanted to be stable and create an opportunity where we can impact, you know, and, and support as many families as we could. And, and through that, we, we opened up our first remote learning center um, where we welcomed children who were shut out of the schools to have a safe space to come and, and do their schoolwork, be in their virtual classrooms. And it also allowed the parents to go to work. But that pipeline and that, that template also led to us opening up our own after school programs and two of the local schools in the Mount Airy community. And, you know, that was part of our vision, but it kind of expedited that process because it gave us the platform that we needed to kind of move forward and take that to the next step. Fortunately, we have over 50 children in our after-school program. In our second year in the Mount Airy, we are servicing currently uh, Henry Houston and also CW Henry Elementary Schools. Let's talk about how important it is to have that gear shift. It's such a pivotal time in 
your kids' lives. So not only was there COVID, but then there was a spike in, in violence in the communities. And you were able to step in and say, okay, let's refocus, guys. Let's refocus. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it was a time where everybody kind of wanted to pause and, and stop everything. But for me, I think trying to keep a sense of normalcy, keep some momentum going was very important because the world was shaken up and our, and our mental health and, and our physical health was at, as at risk. You know, so keeping those children engaged, keeping them active, keeping their minds focused. Focus. And, you know, so every opportunity we found, whether that was taking food to first servers or, or our priority members, um, feeding our families, whether that was allowing us to do baseball or kickball outside, any type of community event where we could do it and be safe, we wanted to take advantage of that. And so I think for us, it was trying to keep our kids active because we knew the after effect was going to be detrimental the longer that we sat idle and we wasted time. So I wanted to kind of be active as soon as possible to get our kids, to get our staff, our volunteers back active. So you originally started this to be Germantown, Mount Airy, and it's since expanded. It's all over the city. Yes, absolutely. Um, really, you know, I had a vision, start small and grow big. And really, it's, it's for me, it's baby steps. You know, being patient with the growth, being patient with the opportunities, I feel like they'll come over time. And so we really started small community-based program, like you said, Mount Airy, Germantown area. But then, you know, families talk, you know, they spread the word. If they like something, they're going to tell their friends and they'll tell their friends. And so, you know, happily, we're able to service, you know, children from all over the city, from far northeast, South Philly, Southwest, West Philly, North Philly, um, even outside Conshohocken, Glenside, Upper Darby. So really, I'm happy to see the diverse programs that are able to come together in one unity space and be a part of something great. And so I'm glad that our reach is, is getting as big as it is, but also that we're able to impact as many lives as we are throughout the city. And it's important for kids to be exposed to new things and new people. Absolutely. I mean, through these activities, you, you'd be surprised you build lifelong relationships. You know, a lot of the guys I grew up playing sports with or I went to some specialty programs with, you know, it's great to see them now as adults and see how successful people are. And so, you know, through these opportunities, through these programs, you know, parents, you know, meet other parents alike. You know, the kids, they get involved with friends and they become great buddies outside of, you know, the sports outside of school. So it's really a great opportunity to bring different individuals from different communities together, some different schools, different backgrounds in life, and just watch everybody come together and unify for a great purpose. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. More than 100,000 people in the U.S. are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. More than 5,000 from this area alone show you support them. Register as an organ donor at DonorsOne.org and help save lives. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. The Philly Rising Changemaker is sponsored by Penn Medicine Heart and Vascular Center, performing the most advanced heart procedures in the region. KYW's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. Happy holidays, y'all. Lots of giving events happening around the city this month. You know how Philly gets down. Our Changemaker of the Week is Nikki Bagby. She's founder of A Humbled Heart, and she's having a holiday giving series, part of which will take place at Edward T. Steele Elementary in North Philadelphia. Here's more. Holiday giveaways are plentiful in the city of brotherly love during this time of the year. Nikki Bagby, founder of a Humbled Heart nonprofit, is being intentional about making sure some groups aren't forgotten this season. We not only have families of children who have incarcerated parents, but we have parents who have lost a loved one to murder. 
We have parents over the years that have lost a loved one to illness. So we want to make sure, although they've been through something life tragic, that we turn it around and take their purpose into pain and just sprinkle an extra little bit of love for them and just to let them know we're here, we see you, and we just want to support you. This month, her Joy of Giving Holiday Celebration Series will serve thousands of kids in and around the Nicetown neighborhood with a focus on children who have incarcerated parents. Um, I know a lot of community partners have been working very hard to just give some normalcy to a community where we've had some of the highest homicide rates over the last past 10 years. So how do we do that? We meet children where we are. We bring athletes and actors, recording artists, CEOs of companies, electricians, anybody that can come to not only give them a word of encouragement, but to make their day full of joy just for one day where they can stand still in time and just have fun. Shiny McIntyre is a single mother of two daughters, six and 18 years old. Her family is one of those being showered with gifts, dinner, and a little extra love this season. But to know that that parent is missing and to know that that child sometimes feels a void, you know, it saddens the other parent's heart because it's like, I don't, I can't really do anything about it, but try to kind of keep that bond. It feels really uh, great knowing that people care about you and people love you. Bagby says the mission is personal for her. Well, I was that person. I was a young mom, 18 years old, trying to figure life out, me and my husband. And there were always someone that was in our in our circle that would reach out to help us. And I've always wanted to pay it forward, right? Bagby, who's a nice town native, says her goal is to inspire hope and joy for the community, which has faced many challenges over the past couple of years. So we're just going to continue to change the trajectory for our young people and give them a day of joy. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. If you know someone making a difference in your community, we want to hear about it. You can call the station or shoot me an email nominating our next Philly Rising Changemaker. That's a wrap for this week. Happy holidays, y'all. And thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday Howard, and our podcast producer, Tom Rickert, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>